Okay. And we are starting right now. Thank you, everyone, for coming today, our panelists and our lovely audience. Um, this session is on the future of, of governance uh, post-Capital Riot. And uh, the origin of this session was um, in the Noetic Nomads Discord. Ryan and I were talking about uh, um, you know, a possible session, a panel on governance in an age of complexity right before uh, the events of January 6th. And of course, after that happened, uh, what happened was, okay, I think we need to address the elephant in the room because uh, I don't know how everyone else feels, but I know I personally feel that uh, that event was an inflection point and that perhaps after that, uh, things are not necessarily going to be the same anymore. So I would love to get into this with our North Star being we envision, you know, what what is going to happen and what are some possible ways, some possible new political structures or just ways of governance uh, from here on out. Um, so I would like to pass it on to our facilitator for today. Ryan, please go ahead, unmute yourself and take care of our lovely panel. Great. Thank you, Albert. And, and uh, welcome, everyone. Great to see everyone. And thanks, everyone, for watching. Um, and just a little bit more of background context about this before the, the capital right incident happened that we we have to talk about, right? Is that I wanted to get together a diverse group of individuals who some with some people who have more like libertarian leaning views and some people maybe with more progressive views and explore different attitudes we have towards government and government structures and how we envision the future of that to look like, especially at a time like this where it really seems like there, there is a crisis that needs to be addressed. And, and I just want to get a lot of ideas on the table of how we can move forward, uh, agree or disagree. So. I'm really excited about that. So maybe as the first prompt, um, we'll just go around, do a, do a go around for the panelists. And if you can just briefly introduce yourself, maybe what what uh, angle you're approaching this subject with, maybe a little bit about your um, intellectual background or what kind of philosophies or, or uh, yeah, in your intellectual background you're coming from to make sense of everything. And then a few salient thoughts on the incident that happened and then how you briefly share how you uh, see us moving forward. And then we'll, we'll get into the conversation. So who would like to begin? I almost had to call on someone if someone volunteers. Let's start with Evan. All right, so my name's Evan. Um, my intellectual background is pretty varied and diverse. I tend to draw from mathematics, information theory, Buddhist philosophy, um, you know, you name it. I, I'm a huge nerd, I read a lot. So um, I bring a sort of mixed perspective to things. Um, as far as what I'm up to in the world, I have a day job, I am an engineer and I'm currently a sense maker in residence on the STOA doing a project called The Bridge, which is looking at a sort of synthesis or integration of um, some aspects of science and spirituality. So that's me. Oh, and sorry, Evan, could you share a little bit about just your some of your few highlights about the incident and then a short vision of how you see us moving forward? Sure, yeah. So um, my political background is I currently think of myself as politically homeless. At various times, I've identified as a libertarian, as a hard leftist, as a... Um, you know, uh, sort of uh, middle of the road centrist. I I've been all over the place and I don't really feel like I've changed. I feel like the labels have. So that's kind of my background there. Um, as far as my take on the event that we're discussing, um, the thing that screams out to me about this, um, this whole 
eruption is that it points to the need for what I call scale, scale varying politics, right? So people may have heard of scale invariant politics, scale varying politics. I think we've reached the point at which um, like right now, our system basically recapitulates the same type of organizational structures and uh, control systems at various levels of a hierarchy. Um, you know, you got city, state, uh, national, et cetera. And actually, the, because of the differences in scale, these, uh, these ways of organizing things are not scale invariant. It's, it's not appropriate to organize a national federation the same way that it is appropriate to organize a local municipality or a neighborhood or, you know. So, so that's kind of the lens I'm taking into this conversation. I'm very curious to see where it goes. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Evan. Uh, who wants to go next? Sure, Ariel. Can go next, that, that sparked some stuff. Uh, my name's Ariel, uh, I'm a writer former podcaster, I guess, current podcast guest here and there, um, digital nomad. I, I really liked what Evan said, like that term politically homeless, like that sort of like bounced around in my head after. I feel like I'd maybe describe myself as like political nomad. Like I used to be um, radical leftist anarchist and I've moved away from that quite a bit. I think part of my like intellectual journey, so to speak, has been kind of moving from like a, an intellectual landscape that was very focused on politics to one that was more focused on philosophy. And now I'm moving into one that's more like focused on spirituality and religion. Although it's like, who knows what's like a progression and what's just like kind of like just moving around between different nodes. Uh, yeah, so I thought it was really interesting when Albert invited me to do this because I've been sort of trying to like limit to some extent, like the degree to which I like follow some of these current events. They sort of want to know like generally what's going on, but I find it can be like such a, it almost can just like cannibalize, I don't know if that's the right word, like consume all my like intellectual resources. And so there's like a danger there, but it was interesting. Cause like when Albert was like, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, it sounds so cool. It, it sort of gave me permission to just like read about this whole thing for the past like 36 hours and so it's been like it's been like a rabbit hole and I find like when I do that like just go into like the YouTubes and the videos and like listen to what people are saying and all this stuff it like there's something like extremely unsatisfying about it it's almost like I just like I'm searching for some kind of catharsis in that whole landscape that doesn't exist so I'm really excited to talk about it with you guys and just like bring it to a whole different level. Like even what Evan was just saying now is just so interesting. And yeah, I'll pass it on to someone else. Great, thank you so much. I could probably jump in uh, in, the, in the name of commonality. Uh, it seems like we're having a similar through line here. Um, uh, I guess I'm gonna just start with the, the political uh, uh, history. Um, I think my, my before politics was much of anything. I kind of defaulted to a uh, democratic kind of progressive view, um, but just centrist and not very analyzed. Uh, then uh, about a decade ago, I went really hardcore into the libertarian uh, space uh, and became a bit of a, uh, a zealot. Um, and then uh, that unfold that unraveled and um, Shortly after that, um, got it really into philosophy, which kind of was moving into a little bit more of a foundational view that informed any of my previous political intuitions. Uh, and then um, 
I guess most recently I did a podcast called Both And with a friend of mine who kind of came from the exact opposite orientation as me, um, both uh, religiously and and politically. Uh, and uh, we were kind of pulled together by this theme of mimetic mediation. Um, so I became really interested in how to have fruitful conversations, uh, empathetic uh, uh, conversations with people uh, all over the spectrum. Um, and that's kind of what our uh, the project was there for and went on for about a year and a half, I think. Um, and um, how would I define where I'm at now? Uh, yeah, I mean, the homeless thing feels right in the sense that I, I'm interested in all views, um, but maybe it's like, uh, maybe I'd say like politically a nomad in the sense that I, I'm ready to pack up and go like set up shop with anybody and and try and really understand where they're coming from and, and uh, get a felt sense of where their concerns are. Um, and uh, yeah, then I guess outside of the politics realm, um, I these days I'm just mostly in the, the spiritual world and I guess religious and spiritual world because I'm working uh, with my friend and teacher to um, kind of um, translate Vajrayana Buddhism, which is Tibetanly or, or uh, culturally Tibetan uh, into a Western context. So that's where I've been spending most of my time these days. And I'm sure that I, I uh, will, will commonly reference uh, emptiness in form or something like that, because it's the only lens I tend to see these things through. <laughs> uh, should I say something about the, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm very, um, with the, the events, uh, on Capitol Hill, um, I guess I'm in, in a place of what I might call uh, uninvolvement um, if, of just like really trying to take in a bunch of different perspectives and views and, uh, you know, going to the, the channels on the right, going channels on the left, uh, going to the centrists and trying to get a, a vibe uh, from, from everybody because uh, if there's one thing that I, I feel, it's, it's always interesting to see how the social media narrative of events uh, can really just, just radically differs from all different points of view um, and what actually happened on the ground, uh, you know, maybe in some instances is, is not really as important as, as what themes and, um, and, uh, and concepts and philosophies and, and political stances and stuff like that uh, are the things that actually dominate the conversation and, and create the, the, the change or the evolution in their, their political understanding. So um, I, I don't really have I'm just, just kind of information gathering mode. It feels like at the moment. So I don't know if I'm going to have anything solid to say, but yeah. Great. Thanks, Jared. I think, I think a lot of people are still that place. Um, yeah. Layman or Jeremy? You said Layman first. All right. So, I'll go. Yeah. Uh, Layman Pascal, background in spirituality, philosophy, writing, podcasting. I don't know that I ever felt that I had a political home strongly enough that I could feel nomadic or homeless by contrast. Um, I hold space for a lot of metamodern and integral political discussions. My general sense is thinking of the developmental axis apart from the left-right axis and how a new center could be constituted that is distinct from the center that currently holds. Um, mostly, I've been thinking about myself as a meta-progressive lately, which means some of the progressive themes, but in a meta-sense. And I think that meta-sense requires um, a, a, an aesthetic and ethos integration of left and right, as well as an upgrade in terms of those patterns of 
collective intelligence that we use as our political system. So I think there's like a, a systemic upgrade necessary, but also a feeling upgrade that's necessary. I generally support a kind of a minimum set of progressive social upgrades that I think the system needs, but I don't think there's any way for them to get there without really folding in a lot of the conservative populist virtues and a lot of the libertarian spirit as well. I feel like I'm probably as much libertarian as I am socialist. I'm Canadian, so I'm a little bit distanced from the capital event. I don't know if I would feel differently about it if I was more strongly identified within the American cultural sphere. But from where I'm looking at it, I can't tell if it's an event or not. There, there seems to be a quality of non-event and a quality of event. And I know the left tends to um, exaggerate the idea and the ideal of transformative moments. So I'm often cautious about that. I don't know if this indicates a disruption or if it indicates business as usual. Uh, so that's where I'm at. All right. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Jeremy Johnson. I am uh, an author, the host of the Mutations podcast and co-host with uh, Ryan and Matt of the Growing Down podcast, of which we just hosted one before this session talking a little bit about uh, the events at uh, Capitol Hill. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I would uh, just describe myself as, as a leftist. Um, I, I would say I am a transitional socialist or democratic socialist and that I think there are sort of a bare minimum of, um, you know, uh, policy concerns that need to be enacted, but I'm much more interested in the kind of regenerative culture principles, uh, retrieving the commons and exploring kind of the, well, this topic of this, this session today, the future of governance and what that looks like from, uh, the perspective of cultural evolution, integral studies, um, particularly Gepser's work, uh, I'm a little bit all over the map, though, because obviously I'm very interested in spirituality and consciousness studies, and that tends to be um, somewhat missing on the left when it comes to discourse on spirituality, with the exception of like liberation theology. So um, interesting kind of mimetic mediation space, even within the left that I that I tend to kind of hold. Um, and yeah, I think I think there's a lot of interesting questions that that are um, explored and perhaps anticipated by the left, maybe not necessarily answered. Like I think Mark Fisher's work is particularly important for me in terms of um, anticipating post-capitalist futures. But what those look like, I'm interested in exploring with a diverse range of perspectives and thoughts, etc. So that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, everyone. And uh, we're also, I don't know what happened to Matt Segal, who was supposed to be here, but uh, Matt, if you're out there, come come join us and uh, we'll plug you in. So um, obviously this is a very you know wide ranging topic. It's a, it's a big umbrella, you know, the future of governance. There are a lot of different directions we could go here, but I thought I'd leave it fairly open and see what arises naturally and what's salient. And so I think a lot of people, just to set the tone here, right? I think a lot of people get the sense, and this has been brewing uh, for a long time, but also and really kind of erupted with the with the uh, capital incident is something is really wrong, right? Something's really wrong with the system. And so whether we want to approach it from an epistemic angle, whether we want to talk about it in terms of uh, structure of you know democracy or, or how power is uh, delegated throughout society, whether we want to talk about 
should should the U.S. balkanize or whatever? I, whatever comes up, and whoever wants to kick it off in terms of how do we move forward and what does this future look like? What does this future look like to you? And what is the ideal future we th you think we should be really moving towards? Uh, to that really captures and grounds the spirit of what whatever we're trying to cultivate here, right? Sense making, game B, meta modern, integral, whatever uh, consciousness. This next movement that we're all trying to dream into reality. So whoever feels inspired, just take it away, and we'll we'll let the discussion roll from there. Yeah, I guess I feel kind of inspired. I mean, I feel like it's interesting also that you're, I would kind of highlight that you're framing it as like what we think should happen or what our ideal would be starting off there. Cause I feel like it's all too easy to go into like what could happen or what might happen or what we think will happen. And that can get into like some darker places. Uh, yeah, I really wanted to talk on um, what Evan said during his intro. Cause I thought that what you were saying about which variant and invariant scale invariant politics like you were kind of saying that like it works like a fractal now kind of and it shouldn't so i'd be i'd be interested in hearing you elaborate on that like more specifically how you think that should change well so i want to tie this in at first by talking about something that a lot of people in these spaces talk about which would be the meaning crisis um because i think they're related so when I talk about these different levels and different um, structures being appropriate for them, I think that um, you know one of the uh, the interesting ideas that was part of the founding of the United States, in particular, was the idea of the states as laboratories of democracy. Right, that there could be significantly divergent policies and values implemented in these local spheres, and then the best of those results could be taken up by by others. You know, in a, in a sort of like. Uh, evolutionary or market type type dynamic. And, th and that, that was good, if you ask me. So what we've had, though, is an increasing trend of centralization of policymaking in the federal government. Um, you look at the interpretations of the Commerce Clause, for example, that have allowed the government to um, prosecute the drug war. That's, that's a good example. It's a really strained interpretation of the Commerce Clause, if you ask me, that allows the government to tell you, the federal government to tell you that you can't grow weed in your own backyard, even if you never sell it, right? So, so the reason I bring that in is because the stakes for federal elections have gotten enormously high. And we've had a sort of fracturing or atomization, this crisis of meaning. There is no overarching culturally shared meta narrative for how to construct meaning and how to construct our values from that sense of meaning. So this means that the federal government and the presidential election in particular is seen as being of existential stakes by people across all sides of politics. And in the one sense, they're probably not wrong about that. But in the other sense, does it really have to be like that, right? Um, it would be much nicer in certain senses if we could allow for more experimentation at the local scale um, and at the state scale than we currently allow for given the overarching power of the federal government. The power of the federal government has increased in a fairly steady way since we replaced the Articles of Confederation with the Constitution. So where I'm going with this is what I would like to see happen, if, if I can just dream here for a second, is a recognition of the different levels of political organization that exist, you know, federal, state, regional, municipal, hyper-local, like in the sense of neighborhoods perhaps, and recognizing that people can have different values and different ways of structuring their little microclimates in this sense, um, and, and engage in a sort of, uh, you know, um, 
I love uh, the phrase that uh, Greg Thomas, I think, used of rooted cosmopolitanism, right? You know, so, um, you know, being cosmopolitan and pluralistic and allowing space for different experiments to happen um, is not really possible with the current concentration of power in the federal government. And so I see that as being something where I'm in some degree of resonance, perhaps with the libertarian perspective here, um, at seeing a decentralization of um, power. And particularly here, I'm speaking of social issues broadly construed. It's nice to have a large economy where we can all trade with each other using the same currency that requires some centralization there. But um, for the more like social issues type of things, it would be great if we could experiment with that at a more local level and, and, and do that without uh, acting as though the sky is falling because the people one town over have different values than we do. So that's kind of my like take on that, that, that like my expansion of that initial statement if anybody wants to pick it up from there. Well, I'm really curious about the mechanisms that would make the laboratories function well. Like, what does it take for a good laboratory? And then also, how do we recognize and harness the things that are working from particular laboratories and implement them elsewhere if we think they're successful? Uh, I think one of the mechanisms is some kind of feedback procedure. Because when I look at what happened at Capitol, you, you see all of a sudden a whole bunch of bipartisan sentiment because it actually affected the lawmakers. And we frequently see very quick turnaround and bipartisan movements when they're actually affected by their own decisions or their own situations. So as long as you continue to have decision makers who are not affected by the consequences of their decisions, I think even if they're well-intentioned, they cannot make smart decisions. There's another element in this as well, maybe just a sort of a tertiary point between Evan and, and uh, Lehman. Uh, in terms of scales of politics, I think what we've seen missing over the past 30 or 40 years is the organization of labor and labor typically or traditionally has been the response to the politicians in terms of what's going on on the hill and being able to respond economically right um i think what we've seen you know recently uh, not only through the the the, the capitol hill insurrection or, or or riot that was a debate for our stream just now like what do we call it sedition um is is a kind of a, a, a lashing out, right? A populist lashing out, and there's a lot of caveats and and uh, subtopics we can talk about with that. But the lack of labor organization um, as uh, as an institutional force, as a social institutional force, is neither necessarily hyper local nor is it federal it's something that's kind of tertiary or perhaps in between or what they call like third spaces right so i think the institutionalization of organizational power and labor power is probably one of the things that needs to come online to whatever we're going to do you know make it healthier in terms of actual social participation and showing consequences for um legislative actions Yeah, I, I guess like, this is all really interesting. Like something that's like kind of bugging me a bit or I don't really know how to integrate it is like, it seems like so many of the political controversies that are taking place these days in the US and like I shall to say, I am a Canadian, so it's an outsider's perspective, but they seem to be issues that would be hard to like arbitrate on a local level. Like I'm thinking like immigration, like, to go to war, to not go to war, to globalize, to not globalize. Like, I don't really see, I mean, it seems like sort of like becoming like separate nation states almost like with their own borders and economically and physically. I don't, it's hard to see how like, you know, California could be like, 
pro-globalization and like uh, bombing Syria or whatever, and like Texas could be not doing that. Well, I think the states could, uh, they have a lot of flexibility or ought to in terms of cultural issues and in terms of their decision-making mechanisms. So I think they're, my goal, my hope would be there are a lot of experimentation when it comes to local organization, how votes are done, how collective intelligence is tallied up, what kinds of moods, what kinds of social protocols people are implementing so that we can see what the consequences are. But there are obviously a lot of things that have to happen at larger scales. And I think one of those things, in addition to immigration and defense and things like that, is the question of how you implement universality, like even just as a spirit of universality. Because one of the things people need, even if you think the universal element is just fundamentally individual freedom, that has to be sustained across all of those divisions somehow, hopefully in the most minimal possible way. But one of the roles that the federal government in the United States seems to be failing at and has been failing at for some time is generating any sense of common universality and spirit among the citizens. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, bringing things back to Capitol Hill, it's interesting to note that like there's a controversy around, like there's the specific controversy around the election was based on this, like how federal should the voting systems be, right? Like Texas had their whole lawsuit that the systems that like Pennsylvania and the four controversial states put in place, like were basically like lacked certain safeguards that they felt were necessary. And they made, they were making an argument that they shouldn't be allowed to do that. And the Supreme Court dismissed it, but it's, you know, that's a situation where arguably things should be, should be, should be more federal. I, I don't know. It's yeah. I don't know. Someone else jump in. I want to jump in here and talk about for a second. So there's a reason I, I, I drew specific attention to the sort of social issues, or we might say culture war type issues um, that, that are so problematic when dealt with at national scale, right? Because one of the things that's essential in dealing with, um, you know, the issues that were brought up earlier about like, do we go to war? What's our policy with borders? These sort of national scale issues is that people be able to think clearly and reasonably about these issues, okay? And so these culture war or social issues serve to, um, you know, a phrase that goes around in spaces like this a lot is to limbically hijack people, right? In such a way that they're not really able to perform a sort of rational cost benefit analysis of various policies. You know, if, if you're a single issue voter on a culture war issue, then you're essentially abdicating your responsibility to um, examine all of these national scale geopolitical issues and vote according to your values in that sense, right? And so if we can demote the culture war issues to be more local issues, then we might be able to restore the sort of federal level as a, as a consensus building and arbitration mechanism between the various states um, in terms of determining our course as a, as a nation, right? Because right now, the, the, one of the big problems that you sort of alluded to there with the voting system thing is that because people distrust those in power at the federal level due to the culture war issues, they're not able to trust the federal level to be an arbiter of any issues because of the level of distrust sown by being limbically hijacked by culture war issues. I'm not doing the best job of, of, point, of, of saying what I'm trying to say, but hopefully that made sense to somebody and they can pick up the thread. Yeah, 
Uh, I'll just add one note and then we'll open it up, I think, uh, for, for somebody else. Uh, but uh, Layman's point and Evan's point, with respect to the, the the cultural issues that are going on right now and the limbic hijacking, um, you know, I, I think a, a large part of this is is a sense of estrangement and alienation from politics really having any kind of material relevance to everyday lives, you know, just in terms of, okay, everything's going up on the hill, there's no connection with what's going on here. Um, the drain the swamp rhetoric on the right, and then on the left, of course, there's a, a lot of um, economic populist outrage just in terms of uh, Pelosi, et cetera, et cetera, and the stimulus bill. So there's just been a lot of frustration, economic and material frustration, and we're seeing it being channeled into these kind of um, sweeping movements like QAnon, et cetera, uh, which sort of mythologize these kinds of events. This is something that we were talking about in the last stream, the kind of mythologization of you know, what, what are these myths saying? Like, uh, the pedophile rings and the kind of mass conspiracy at the top. And well, what's the image that all of these conspiracy theories are really kind of expressing here, right? It's, it's Saturn devouring his children. It's, um, some kind of corrupt top brass conspiracy. And I feel like the, the disenfranchisement from political power, feeling uninvolved in that is channeling and energizing a lot of this populist conspiracy movement. So I think the question again is sort of between the hyper-local immediate, you know, county level and regional level participation and the federal level participation, we really need some kind of intermediary that isn't necessarily more of the state or purely consumer and private citizen, right? So again, I think the revitalization of some kind of commons centric organization for the 21st century is one of our most potent tools. And I think it's interesting how it overlaps with both libertarian and also um, democratic socialist values in, just, in some ways. So it's an interesting split space to explore. I want to ask Jared, did you have any, uh, any thoughts? <laughs> um, probably too many. Um, I guess th there's, there's two big question marks in, in my mind at this moment. Um, and that is, uh, the, the impact first of our social networks, uh, and, you know, like we've corporate control and, 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 uh, influence, uh, is something that we're not, um, estranged to, and, you know, crony capitalism in general has, has been around for a long time. Uh, it's, it, but yet we're in a marketably different place because, um, you know, the oil barons didn't own the public square, uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I, I see this, um, the lack of sense-making being directly connected to this, the lack of institutional, uh, um, faith that being related to this. Um, and then the other thing would be institutionally, uh, especially from a governmental perspective, I think it, it, there's a, seems to be a pretty broad, con not, not broad consensus, but a, um, Transpartisan uh, consensus that they they genuinely are not functional, um, and and that what led to the dysfunctional uh, uh, institution governmental institutions uh, is is a bit of a question mark to me too here. So say so yeah, I, I I don't know if, if there's anything of uh, you know the public square being privately owned and 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 having corporate corporate uh, and that corporate influence extending to government uh, and the government itself being uh, institutionally. Uh, uh, less uh, uh, skillful or, or, or uh, uh, congruent these days. Uh, those are, are two areas that I, I want to put those puzzles in this piece that we're starting to, to 
to put in here. If, if anything, if anything stands out, those, those are the two things I'm just struggling to see how they fit in the picture, uh, how much we should be con concentrating on them. Um, but they feel pretty foundational or, or connected to almost everything else we've been talking about. Yeah, I want to pick it up there for a second. Um, <clears throat> so this sort of uh, something that's been alluded to in several of the past few statements about the sort of uh, nearly universal distrust of the currently existing uh, political leaders and institutional structures, I think can in many ways be traced back to something that we might call, um, you know, I'm going to gesture at something here with phrases like crony capitalism and regulatory capture, right? And I think, again, that this has something to do with the scale of politics and the concentration of power at the top, because if you're going to try to pull a regulatory capture move for your own self-interest, then the more concentrated the power at a certain scale, the more attractive that is as a target, the more resources it's worth investing in capturing that particular regulatory mechanism to work for your own ends. And since we have concentrated power so much at the federal scale, it's become an incredibly attractive target for regulatory capture. And we could talk about any of the reasons why that is, but I, I just wanted to bring that into the conversation as well to follow up on what Jared said. Yeah, one thing I'd also like to kind of throw in there is uh, I feel like a big part of the reason why there is that like universal sense that things are really not going good in the US right now is there's been like very conscious and deliberate manipulation by the US's geopolitical enemies, in particular China, but to a large extent Russia as well. Like this, it's, I don't know if there's a term for it, like uh, enemy authoritarian state audience capture or something like that, but there's it's very clear, like it's like China is very clearly like seeding a lot of the opinions that are becoming popular on the left. Uh, Russia's very, you know, seeding a lot of the opinions that float to the surface in a lot of libertarian communities. You get like uh, Qatar seems to be like influencing the radical left quite a bit. It so that's the whole thing. It's usually like this, like this, not only. It seems like the mainstream media and the alternative tech media are becoming like very influenced in particular by China. And, and they are like, you know, celebrating. They're like, no one is happier than, you know, Xi on January 6th. Well, and, and that directly kind of pulls in, you know, the, the complication of the public square, right? Because it's like, yeah, our discussion uh, is no longer, uh, uh, you know, just something that can happen locally, uh, you know, the, and it's something that can be gamed. And it's, you know, like the, the, the world of algorithms that we live in, like, as soon as we, uh, we, we've set a, 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 we've created this social game, uh, and it is not some a game that only Americans are playing, and it, and, and not everybody has good intentions, and it's it's that much easier to to influence in nefarious ways too. So you have a big connection there too. Yeah, we have to somehow uh, accept this massive entanglement that is the current situation. Will continue to get worse, but we have to also think about. How do we implement membranes that keep spaces available to be free spaces for groups to make decisions, right? If our media space is constantly being invaded by foreign agents as well as, you know, domestic, privately incentivized agents, uh, then we have a problem in making sense of our information ecology. And likewise, I mean, Ryan knows this. I've proposed the thought experiment of a secret ballot in the legislatures, because even though hypothetically the legislative agent 
Americans are accountable to the people, in reality, they're primarily accountable to their financial sponsors and to their party groupings. And they don't have the opportunity to vote their conscience, even if they had one, because they're being inspected. And we know from psychological studies that if people are being watched and they think there are going to be positive or negative consequences from their vote, they do not vote what they think. Right. That's why we implemented secret ballot in the general elections. So there are a number of mechanisms uh, that might work. But in general, philosophically, we need to be thinking about how membranes could be set up that would make certain areas into sacred and or functional spaces for the society. That's so interesting. And like it makes me think like the same thing's kind of happening on like a all of us all the time kind of level. It's almost like there's like a universal panopticon happening. <sighs> Like, it seems like it really comes down to privacy. Like there's just gotta be something where we can say what we think and we can like just be who we are without people watching us and like, you know, covertly manipulating what's the acceptable, like whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think a part of this is is actually having like democratic pathways to make these decisions or to uh, prevent these things from getting out of hand decades, you know, uh, ahead of uh, the repercussions like, um, somebody was posting about the section 230 question. So that has recently, um, I think been repealed or is, is the consideration of it being repealed? Um, is that going to help further the commons? And then earlier we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, this process of, you know, China, et cetera, and uh, kind of the globalization question. And a lot of these things historically have been, um, systematically removed from the democratic process of decision making like uh the unions were sort of betrayed during the nafta agreements etc so the the kinds of globalization and the kinds of market and economic pressures which which um disempower us have been uh, made was the decisions to actually empower us and allow these things to be much more democratic process have been, you know, further and further from our grasp. So, you know, this is a sort of, sort of like a historical question as well about like really understanding how things got to the place and where they are and what we can learn from those historical situations. So we can either prevent this from getting worse or find ways to organize around, um, you know, repealing amending uh, and, and actually increasing our capacity to make these decisions democratically. Oh, yeah. Uh, so thank you so much, Jeremy. Uh, so I believe I uh, will go to our first question. As uh, you just mentioned, Jeremy, uh, Chris, can you unmute yourself and ask your question of the panel? Yeah. Hey, guys. Um, I, I want to know what your guys' opinion on Section 230 is, which is um, how private tech companies are protected from their users. I think we're in a different situation where you can't think these companies as private anymore because of the public use and how there is seems to be a, a kind of a public square, but we don't know the sort of um, boundaries around that really. Um, should we repeal it? Should we amend it? And would it and would a repeal or an amendment work towards the information commons we want? Yeah, so if everyone wants to grab it, uh, just go ahead. I'll jump in here real quick. So um, I don't have an answer to that question. Uh, what I have is some considerations that I think are, are underappreciated when we're having conversations surrounding things like the regulation of public squares and the free speech conversation in general and what was brought up earlier about privacy, right? So the, the role of technology itself 
as a driver of change in circumstance is really underappreciated in these conversations in most places and spaces. And so what I mean by this is that conversations about free speech that call back to the sort of philosophical discussions that were being had from like 1600 to 1800 are deeply out of date because the degree to which weaponized mimetics have become a significant cultural and political force enabled through the ongoing march of information technology is, is completely out of the scope of those philosophical conversations that were had during that time period. And most people still default to positions that would have been recognizable to the framers of the constitution when they discuss these things. None of those positions are in fact valid anymore, would be my read, because they do not sufficiently take into account the degree to which mimetics is better understood and much more effectively weaponized. And the transmission vectors are so much more numerous and more powerful due again to the ongoing march of information technology. So again, dodging the question, but I think we need to consider those when we start thinking about answers here. Yeah, I mean, nationalism and the Industrial Revolution go hand in hand, too. I mean, we can even say like, you know, the uh, the outbreak of war in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, you know, leading to World War One is, is a direct consequence of uh, the speed and power in which we were able to assemble a form of nationalism. Um, and then again, you know, fascism in the 20th century as well. So it's like <laughs> communication media is always underappreciated here, right? Go ahead, Ariel. I'm, I'm going to say I, I, I disagree with Evan, even though I think it's a really interesting point. Uh, and I'm going to say no, I do not think Section 230 should be repealed. Uh, the, the big social media companies have become big under the protection of 230. They were not have been able to do that otherwise. And to repeal it now would give a massive disadvantage to the small tech companies like Parler and BitChute. And I, I, I predict tentatively, because I'm wrong about so many things in this world, but I predict that they're going to repeal it to try to kill the small tech companies now. It's basically like Twitter, Facebook, the big tech companies are putting in mechanisms where they they basically can function without 230, where they can like you know use algorithms to basically behave more like a publication, like to that's what, like the fact checking is right. So like Section 230 like removes all liability from tech companies for what their users post. So these like algorithms and these like truth checkers, these fact checkers, which by the way, some of them do have ties to uh, companies in China, which are beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. These fact checkers, uh, their supposed role is to like make all the, the content, you know, supposedly like true. So now if Section 230 were repealed, those tech companies, would they'd have a, a way where they could argue that they're still free of liability law. And meanwhile, like the small tech companies who are trying to prioritize the free flow of content would not, it, it would destroy their whole like ethos. Uh, and I, I, where I disagree with you, I think Evan is, you made a really important point there about how the context has changed since the idea of free speech was first, first floated. But I would argue that it, it's based on universal principles about the value of truth and the redemptive power of being able to communicate freely in this world. And I do think that's under attack. And I do think that's something that needs to be preserved. I think that it's really important to think about who is most able to thrive if the legislation is repealed. Because in principle, I'm in favor of trust busting and demonopolization of these things that are holding so much power and posing as platforms. But in practice, 
um, those are precisely the agents who will most be able to adapt to that shift. And it's one of the general problems of regulation is it's the giants who have enough money to be able to game the new regulations. So the new regulations usually fall harder on the smaller agents, which is exactly the opposite of the principle that they're being implemented for. That's a tangential note that would open up another can of worms. I think one of the orthogonal solutions to this, which is going to be its own debate, is is whether or not to make the internet a public utility and whether or not to, not instead of breaking up Facebook, also to do kind of the same thing. And I know that's a whole can of worms. There's a lot of debate about it and should be socialize the internet, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's some interesting directions there rather than just stamping more regulatory uh, restrictions on what companies can do. It's like if you're big enough to be our main communication medium so that the president governs through Facebook or Twitter, then maybe we should think about this being a public utility. Yeah, let's have, uh, I think Ariel is going to respond then. Um, and I want Evan to give Evan a chance to respond to the, uh, the disagreement. So go ahead, Ariel. I'll let Evan go first. Well, so it's funny. Um, I wasn't aware that I had stated a position at the object level to be disagreed with. So that's interesting because I, I wasn't taking a position on 230 at all um, in my statement. Um, at least I wasn't intending to. What I meant by bringing that uh, perspective into the conversation that I offered last time had to do with the, um, like I like to use evolutionary metaphors and perspectives a lot, biological, biomimicry type metaphors and perspectives a lot. And so, when we consider the fact that there was a time before organisms had immune systems, right? So then these things called viruses arose and the sorts of organisms that didn't evolve immune systems were essentially outcompeted by those that did um, with some exceptions, some archaic relics. And so the reason I brought up weaponized memetics is because free speech as a society is essentially the policy of not having a mimetic immune system as a society. Now, I'm not taking the position that, and therefore we should do away with free speech protections. I'm not taking that position. I've been a free speech, pretty close to a free speech absolutist for most of my life. And that's still my sort of native territory that I'll retreat back into if I'm forced to take the position. But I'm growing increasingly uncomfortable with an absolutist approach to free speech when you view memetics and weaponized memetics as analogous to the evolution of biological viruses and their effect on organisms. Great, thank you. I just wanted to pause for a second and welcome Matt. Matt, hey Matt, our other uh, panelist is a little late. Um, but uh, yeah, Matt, welcome. Do you want to just take a, we're just get, about to uh, segue into talking, the, what we just talked about on our, on our uh, stream about social media and the, you know the whole free speech debate and public platform debate. So if you want to just take a moment, just introduce yourself and uh, we'll get you into the conversation. Well, cool. can you guys hear me? Yeah, perfect. Sorry, sorry I'm a little, little late. I had to eat some lunch uh, after our last stream. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I, I am ready to launch into anything. I'd, I'd love to hear if, any, if you want to, I mean, free speech, is that the topic now? And oh, we're, we're kind of navigate. Yeah, and then Jeremy brought in kind of the, the piece too about um, if we should have the uh, social media publicized. Yeah, yeah, public utility, um, right. Trump using it to govern, that that conversation, yeah. But Matt, if you want to just start off, maybe give one minute, just a little bit about your background, who you are, then you can take it from there. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, Thou Art That on Twitter and uh, on YouTube and in the meat world, if it still exists. Uh, in that world, I am a professor of philosophy at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, though I have not stepped foot in San Francisco for a year. Uh, so, you know, teaching online. <clears throat> and um, yeah, I've been doing some growing down podcast conversations with Jeremy and Ryan and, and Matt, the other Matt, uh, for like a year now. And uh, we did one earlier today. And we're just talking about how to interpret what happened at the Capitol. And um, now, I guess, in this conversation, we're trying to imagine what comes next. And yeah, this conversation about how to navigate a social media environment that is monopolized by giant for-profit corporations. It's a big problem. And I think I'm with those who are calling for the nationalization. Um, however, that doesn't solve the problems. It just prevents them from getting worse, maybe. Um, <clears throat> it creates a whole new set of problems. So I don't have, I don't have solutions to that, but I'm glad that uh, we're all here to talk about what the problems might be and how to avoid them. Good to see you, Matt. Hey, Layman. Uh, I want to touch on two things Jeremy said that are staying with me. One is, you know, do we socialize the internet? And I think underlying that is a question related to this potential legislative shift, which is we don't really have any significant definition of when something becomes public, right? Some of its use, I mean, you could make a Marxist argument for the socialization of the means of production, uh, we used to have very simplified copyright rules where somebody could take advantage of something in a preferential way for a few years, and then it became available to the public. But we've, we've slowly lost those rights, and in partly that's because we never really had any clear definition of when something ought to be considered to be public or not. And then the other thing Jeremy said is when he was talking about unions as a third space and a potential mediation force between the local and the federal you know, I have no thoughts on that. I, I have no experience with unions. I understand the history and the role that they've played in uh, fighting for the freedom and well-being of workers and counterbalancing a lot of the other elements of the system. But to me, it's just a wide open area of curiosity because I, I don't have any strong feelings or analysis about what the role of unions are or should be. It's interesting. Um I was thinking about this unions thing too, especially with the context in the context of the, the Google union that seems to be popping up right now. Um, and I have looked into it extremely deeply, but it seems like one of the common through lines that I'm seeing is that there's a, a social justice component of, of why that union has come together, you know, having a, a voice about the impact of the income generation uh, of these corporations. And, and I like that because that could point to the fact that um, I might back up a little bit here to talk a bit about the scale thing with that Evan mentioned, like as scale increases uh, the strategy for, uh, uh, or, you know, well, um, the heavy hand uh, is that much more uh, oppressive, I guess I, sh I should say. Um, and the interesting thing about these, these social media companies is unlike most institutions, um, they were able to scale to an enormous size very quickly and 
So the the norms that that established the the their original kind of uh, market dominance um, that at one point might have been you know fairly effective and not had any kind of huge external outcomes. Uh, once you scale that up to a super high, uh, you know, uh, national or or international global level, uh, all of a sudden the 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 uh, the, the the possibility of, of negative externalities increases dramatically. And that's all driven by this profit motive. And so it's like, there has to be some sort of counterbalance uh, to kind of inter, you know, create a, a, a social uh, accountability uh, mechanism in those companies um, so that they can make some, some innovation. And, and I think, you know, the, the, uh, um, the labor force seems to be maybe the most obvious place to look for there. And that's a new, a, a new function of, of, uh, of labor organization, uh, at least in some way, or at least that it's it, it, the, the fact that it's such a big thing, because it's not just about the rights of the workers, it's about the impacts of the, the company itself. Yeah, great point, Jared. I, I just leave a brief comment that, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the question about labor in the 21st century, especially digital uh, Silicon Valley labor, et cetera, um, is a, is an open question. I think a lot of the process right now is experimental. Um, you know, we're, we're dealing with really a kind of, a, a, historically the labor movement has been systematically dismantled over the past 40 or 50 years. It's received a lot of heavy blows and, um, it's kind of disappeared from a lot of discourse in terms of even discussions on the left. I mean, you know, you could be on the left culturally, rhetorically, and not talk about this at all. So I think it is very encouraging to see that um, we're, bring, we're beginning to see sort of the economic and the cultural starting to mingle together um, through the Google union. And hopefully there'll be more of that. But what I'm saying is this is a place for wide open experimentation. And I don't think it's going to look the same as the previous and historical labor movements. Speaking of history, I want to bring something into this, which is the <clears throat> the sort of number of poles in the power landscape. If you if you can visualize a power landscape with some number of attractors or poles, well, like the recent historical moment is kind of unusual if you look at the broader sweep of history because <clears throat> we have government as a pole for sure. And we have maybe something like big business as a pole for sure. And then to some extent we have organized religion as a pole, cool. But like, if you look back to say, you know, um, Renaissance or earlier monarchies, you look back to ancient cultures, etc. the power was actually a lot more distributed, even when there was a theoretically absolute monarch in power, because you had, say, merchant classes, banking classes, different competing religious orders, um, you know, organized labor. I mean, even the Romans had, you know, basically, uh, you know, uh, the secession of the clubs happen every so often, right? So you've got... Um, you know, this, this sort of like interesting transition back into the more historically normal state of a highly multipolar power dynamic environment. And that's not something that our current institutions are very well equipped to handle and, and I think should significantly reframe our thinking. Yes, jump in here. So we have, we have several uh, ideas being batted around here, right? We, we, have, we have Matt's and Matt and Jeremy's inquiry about nationalizing media platforms or question of unions as a kind of mediating institution. And then there are kind of a larger systemic and contextual dynamics that Evan's uh, alluding to here. I'm wondering what, what if there's something to maybe zoom in on here that we can really chew into. I'm wondering if we should just chew into the whole issue about uh, nationalizing. I mean, that, that's, that's a concrete enough thing where I wonder if we can get some real kind of ideas or, or explore some differences there. 
Matt, do you do you want to uh, share your thoughts on why you might be more for that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I get the critiques of the idea of nationalizing in that it doesn't really eliminate the monopoly problem. It gives a monopoly to the government. Um, and the current government is less than democratic and still largely controlled by corporations anyway. So that's a problem. Um, but on the other hand, I wonder about the, if we're talking about the issue of free speech moving forward and how being able to ban the president uh, sets a precedent for banning anyone who has extreme views, which from the perspective of neoliberal Democrats is like single payer healthcare is an extreme view. You know, I mean, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but not not really. <clears throat> um, and if you're going to start banning disinformation on social media networks, um, does that include the disinformation of for-profit insurance, health insurance companies, like that are spewing disinformation about how much Medicare for all would cost and so on? So it's like there are problems that are wicked, wicked problems. But I, there's a, here's one thing, here's an argument that I would make in favor of nationalizing, uh, making um, the internet, which what are, we have to get into the details of what this would even mean, but to make it um, a public utility of sorts where we accept that everyone needs to have broadband access to participate in the economy as a, as a, a matter of equity. Um, and, but in terms of free speech regulation, I think we'd actually have more free speech if it were, if, if these social media networks were nationalized because then the first amendment applies. Whereas on a private platform, you're on private property and free speech doesn't apply. These, you could get kicked off Twitter for whatever they wanna kick you off Twitter for. They, you know, the fact that we hold, we think we can bitch at Twitter or Jack Dorsey for kicking someone off of his own front lawn is kind of funny to me. It's like, I think, what's, what do you guys think about the argument that we would have more free speech if it were public property and we're therefore protected by our constitutional rights to free speech? Yeah, I kind of want to jump in here because uh, I agree with a lot of what Matt's saying. Uh, I, I want to also like point out like another issue that's happening right now is um, like the uh, kind of free speech social media platform parlor is being uh, kicked off of the Apple store, the Google Play store, and uh, their hosting is being taken away by Amazon. So now we're seeing like a censorship on a whole other level where, I mean, yeah, like the, I appreciate Matt's point, like, like the, this, this, fact checking is full of contradictions and bias and all that. But now we're not even seeing it, them doing it on their own platform, but they're like basically manipulating the services they provide to decide who deserves those services based on you know, whatever criteria they're using. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I mean, you know, it, it is a wicked problem. It's a good term because if, if nationalizing it is sure to produce a whole host of other problems that we haven't even thought about yet. And there's, there's aspects of it that are that are hard to figure out because, I mean, and many of us are in favor of having these platforms be like pretty open spaces for people to like post whatever they want to. But you do get stuff like uh, spammers, like do spammers have free speech to post whatever they want? And then it, it's like it, like who, who, who decides, like, is it going to be like the U.S. government that owns Twitter? And then is it like 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 is it a committee that decides? Who go, what goes on Twitter? Is it a public public private partnership? Is it just totally subject to the First Amendment? Like, is there a separate direct democratic component 
that determines how these things are governed. Like, like there's a lot of really complex questions. But I guess like the way I think about it, it's a, kind of like a human mind because you get like, like it, in terms of like the multipolar, multipolar power systems, like in a way, like, like the existence of like a capitalist free market and a democratic system is, is kind of creates like a multipolar balance is people are able to like influence things in multiple ways. So if there, if there was some way that there could be like a multipolar exercise of power on the system, like a central executive that's kind of like looking down and making decisions, but also like an emergent, an emergent element that interacts with and may override those decisions. I, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I believe, uh, thank you so much, Ariel. And I believe uh, we're going to get into some questions and uh, riffing off that decentralized and multipolar theme. Um, Benjamin Life from Twitter, he asks, is anyone aware of a civic tech uh, uh, DAO or alliance building decentralized uh, digital, digital public utility? And uh, also maybe we could tie in uh, Bonita Roy's question. Uh, and also uh, what kind of regulation should pertain to uh, an algorithmic or AI design? So does anyone want to touch on those? I don't follow, uh, I haven't followed that. I've heard of it, but I haven't studied it deeply, but I have heard of the DISCO, uh, digital distributed care work and that kind of stuff. And I'll post a link to it on Twitter, but it's a similar kind of initiative to bring kind of peer to peer to, uh, digital common spaces. So, yeah, so I, I think that that's on the right track. I've heard some critiques of, of, uh, of, uh, DAO related materials, but I I am not well informed enough to be able to tell you what those critiques are, but I would check out Disco as well because they have some of those critiques. And when we get into technologically mediated distributed consensus systems and things like that, right? There's always the um, the fundamental issue that these things are embedded in the physical world with uh, with actual human beings. So if we want to talk about one of the original things called the DAO, right, on the Ethereum blockchain, the uh, the DAO as the investment organization, essentially, right? And this was an interesting broken promise from my perspective, because the, uh, the whole structure of that thing was that the code was the contract. We don't need a separate contract. We've implemented this organization and the code is the contract. Cool. So then somebody figures out a way to, without hacking the code, just by using the publicly exposed API, siphon a ton of funds off of that, the infamous DAO hack. Right. And so then this led to a forking of the Ethereum blockchain, whereby the majority of, of nodes on the chain decided, oh, actually, maybe the code wasn't the contract here. We don't like this outcome. We're going to use our physical in reality power of our control over these specific computers to revert that. And that was what that was the fork. And then there's Ethereum Classic, which allowed the blockchain to continue without reversion. So this can lead to a sort of fragmentation and atomization of our ability to do distributed consensus in this sense, when we don't take into account the manifestation of actual like embodied human power and how it affects these digital systems. So just wanted to bring that into the discussion. Yeah, I think that, you know, the history of those moves in Ethereum is interesting because of how fast it goes compared to how fast political and legislative change goes. And to address Benita's question on the regulation of algorithms, 
Like, I don't know if there could ever be a good decision on the regulation of algorithms that would come fast enough to handle the situation, which is going to be constantly upgrading itself technologically. Like the odds that we're going to be able to individually have our own algorithms that will be able to fight back against other people's generalized algorithms. That seems like something that could happen much more quickly than any generalized socio-political decision about how algorithms should be handled. Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, from the uh, integral type point of view where there's these multiple emergent stages or like thematic cultural operating systems, um, it's, it's uncertain whether or not there are multipoles or monopoles in many situations. Because if you have a situation like Evan mentioned in the Renaissance, if everybody has roughly the same form of thinking in the church and the state, and the merchants, then that's kind of collectively a monopole. And I think one of the things we see in the United States right now is, is a great deal of uh, unenforced consonance between the mainstream media, between the uh, liberal centrists, between a lot of people in the boardrooms of major corporations. So it's not clear what would constitute an actual monopole if the multipolar agencies all have roughly the same worldview. Uh, Jared and then uh, Ariel will go. Yeah, I was just going to make a, a comment about uh, the, the regulation of um, algorithms. Uh, my intuition is kind of same in the sense that I, I don't know if uh, you could come up with a very specific or robust regulation. When I'm thinking about it, it, it and, and we'll get back, coming back to the multipolar thing, it's like, from my perspective, I think that legislation should take the form of a feedback mechanism so that there's a new pool that is uh, part of the equation. Um, so I, I'm, when I think of uh, uh, governance, I, I, uh, I like, the, like the, the, the soft hand of transparency things. You know, maybe we say like, um, you know, we need to see the impact of, uh, um, of of uh, of of your social of your social networks uh, and and you know we already all of our our social media networks already have uh, very key insights into psychological dimensions and things like that. There could be ways that we could set up some standards to do uh, tests on mental health or or uh, you know just something like that. Adding another feedback mechanism, things I think would actually impact the algorithms because they would be adjusted in the same way that the the uh, labor force of the social media networks. Um, uh, giving feedback on the impact is creating another feedback mechanism. Um, the more feedbacks that come from multipoles and different perspectives, I think the more likely the emergent algorithm is uh, able to uh, uh, move in a, a, uh, a way that is considerate of, of, of multiple perspectives and, and uh, a little bit more integrated and uh, fluid and not so jerky or something like that, uh, a little bit more organic. Yeah, I, I want to jump in on that because because so my my professional oh, background. I was just gonna have. I was. I think Ariel was in line. Then we'll have you jump in right after that. Oh, I didn't realize there was a line. My bad. No problem. My bad. Go ahead, Ariel. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess to to answer the question, uh, there's a part of me that really just thinks there shouldn't be any algorithms, like just like no algorithms feeding on us. They're illegal. If you want to use Facebook, you have to pay like $10 a year to use Facebook. Maybe if you're in like Cameroon, you only pay $1 a year. But like, that's it. Just they're having such a destructive effect on on society. I, I don't know. I don't I don't really see why. As we're specifically talking about like algorithms 
that feed on us for advertising purposes on social media companies. I mean, AI algorithms generally, there's all kinds of issues. We all passed on to Evan. Yeah, sorry. I, 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 I wanted to speak to this, um, what Jared brought up because of like my professional background, I work in embedded systems and controls engineering. And so if you're looking at a control system involving feedback loops, then you essentially need to have the control system receive inputs at a sampling rate, which is adequate to the refresh rate of the system that is being controlled. So if I have a system that's changing every millisecond and my control loop is only executing every second, then there's gonna be all kinds of nasty feedback dynamics where I get into degenerate states really easily and this is not good, okay? So the current system of deliberative legislative process has an utterly inadequate refresh rate for dealing with the changing pace of technology. And in a lot of ways, you can look at a lot of the bad things that have happened over the past 50 years or so as being downstream of, of that particular issue that legislation and deliberation cannot keep up with the pace of updating of technological progress and change. So we need fundamentally faster, uh, you know, refresh rates in our, in, our, in our deliberative process, we need a fundamentally um, more tightly coupled control system like, like Jared was speaking about. If I may, like I'd add to that too, like it seems like a big problem with the like algorithmic system of legislation is like there's no sunset clause on any of our legislation. So like, you know, the system becomes like super bloated with like outdated stuff that still applies and like, like in, in some ways, like the problem is like just too many laws. Like, I mean, I'm in Canada and here we have like, you know, like there's like laws against whatever reckless driving, but if there's like a reckless driving case in the news, suddenly there's like, a, there needs to be a new exciting law to like appease the people. And then suddenly we have these like, you know, yeah, so faster refresh rate and getting rid of old junk laws probably would help. Yeah, I'm massively in favor of legislative streamlining. Uh, both in terms of letting legislation die, but also in terms of trying to apply an intelligent procedure to um, do more with less. You know, one of the things I appreciated about Trump when he came in was he had this pledge, which I don't think he ever kept, but he was going to not allow a law to come into place unless it replaced two other laws. And that's a very interesting concept. It's a very liberating concept because the law should be small enough to feel humanly understandable. It's just that the people who want to pull the wiring out and deregulate are almost exactly the wrong kinds of people to perform that actual simplification. I don't know what, uh, you know, there's probably language for this and terminology for this within, you know, actual law studies, but it seems like there's a regenerative principle or cyclical principle at work here and that we shouldn't just, you know, uh, allow our legal system to be just a dumping ground where there's just archaic pieces of legislation that are still hanging around, but we should like take care to have like good hygiene, legally speaking. Um, but yeah, I think part of the algorithm question is also just like, the, again, tangentially, but also most importantly, um, the kinds of market forces that are now, you know, deeply incentivized in social media spaces that, you know, it's not just the algorithm, it's the actual market pressures to build these algorithms and extract this kind of data from us, which is sort of like the larger question. Um, yeah. And if, if we expand the, the 
uh, definition of a, a network, you know, like to, or, or not a network, a, a market. Um, right now, we our, our first connotation is to go to the monetary-based markets because that's the, the underlying resource. Um, but I think what we're talking about when we're talking about commons and, and other things, it's like they run on fundamentally different resources. So it's like mental health, uh, social responsibility, uh, you know, like those markets need to, we need a diversification of markets that are run on more than just monetary policy. Can you elaborate on that? Because it's I'm not sure I get what you're saying there. Yeah, well, I guess uh, so. So in the so if, if, if I'm having this hypothetical uh, feedback mechanism that uh, is able to approximate some sort of impact on mental health from a social media network um, that is transparently exposed to the government and maybe even to the public, I think that would be probably even more important. Um, um, that creates uh, the, the the demand then becomes mental health uh, improvement as opposed to uh, capital uh, uh, extraction uh, and profit um, and so and, and the more and, and yet they're not completely disconnected either um, they they still and, and once having a social network that really has a great positive mental health impact on your uh, your audience um, gets a lot of exposure like those are the people that are going to win out of on a competition basis too so it's like you know, kind of integrating the, the, the whole picture. Jared, do you think that can be done without, you know, a massive increase of quantification and like new metrics so that we could turn things that traditionally are qualitatively outside of the market into something that can compete with the market? Like, can you, can you price in mental health um, or do you have to just consider it to be a sort of nebulous zone beyond the market? Um, well, the, the nebulous zone is up beyond the market. It, it seems like uh, maybe it, I mean, all zones are quite nebulous in, in my mind for some reason, but uh, I think it's, it's more of, if it, if it, was, if it is des, uh, uh, distinctly disconnected from the market, then that would in, indicate there's some sort of failure of implementation. So it's gotta be deeply intertwined with it in some uh, fundamental sense. Um, that being said, I, I also, you know, I have no idea what this metric is. And maybe mental health is not something that is very easy to quantify. Um, and, you know, but we don't even know, we know that uh, psych psychologists and uh, sociologists are already, you know, on the payroll of, of uh, Facebook and Twitter and everything like that. Um, I'd love to see what they have, like, you know, see the details and the, um, the efficacy of the data and everything like that. Uh, to know even if it, this is something or if it's just a, a, a pipe dream. Um, and then maybe we could just say, okay, mental health, maybe that one's a little bit too too complex uh, and, it, and it could lead to some negative externalities if, if we have a heavy end on it. Um, so then we, then we just go to uh, some, some broader things like environmental impact or something like that. Uh, yeah, but same thing, same kind of mechanism could be done with each, but I'm sure uh, the methodology in those areas of, of science is, is kind of limits uh, how effective it could be, but you know, Plurality seems to be uh, the the main point here. And ju just uh, uh, sorry, Aaron, just just really quickly, um, just as a time check, we're going to wrap up in like 15, 13 minutes, uh, and so we'll start moving towards like closing statements. I know we we've thrown a lot on the table here, so uh, Aaron, I'll go ahead and uh, talk, and then we'll move into that. Okay, I just I just uh, I found what Jared said there super interesting, or like having visions of like a neural link society, or like you log off of Twitter and you see like some notification like this session was twenty three percent educational and improved your mood by seventeen points or whatever. 
I don't know. I'm a little bit like skeptical of that kind of thing because it's, it almost seems like, like the educational TV kind of movement. It's like the reality is like TV is really a very poor tool for education and trying to paint it with that brush. I don't know. I think social media might be the same. I kind of think I mean, like medium is the message. Like if you want to have like good mental health and education and all that, like you read books and don't spend much time on those platforms anyway. I, I don't know. Yeah, well, the way you said it too is, if, if, you know, me closing out of my app and seeing my score or something like that does feel a little uh, rough. But it, I guess my my uh, the, the the image that popped into my head was like, you know, your quarterly profit uh, uh, announcement also gets a, a a mention of the the general trend of uh, you know these these mental or social uh, components as well, uh, and and they get displayed. And so, but yeah individually oof, yeah I, I don't know maybe what i said is all just nonsense and it, it could turn into a weird dystopian uh, uh hellhole uh, you know <laughs> i have no idea but um, it was really interesting it was really interesting i think um the the dystopian black mirror elements aside and also ariel's comments about how the medium structure that we're interfacing with has definite effects and limits or allows different kinds of outcomes i think there's a huge future for quantizing other things so they can succeed as well or better than the markets have succeeded. And yes, it's weird to think about, you know, quantizing your well-being, but it's weird to think about quantizing ecological necessities. And it's weird to think about quantizing commodities. Like there's no obvious reason why five ducks equals a cow, right? It's it's a difficult, poetic, long-term thing to figure out what numbers go with things, but we know once you get numbers on things, whole new domains open up in terms of what you can do. So to kind of bring it back around to the overall theme of what we were supposedly talking about, you know, what's the role of government in regulating all kinds of markets? And should that be how we think of governance? You know, just, I guess this will be a kind of closing statement. Uh, reflecting on everything that's been said, it, I wonder about what we might learn from China about how not to do this, because they have a social credit score thing live and running right now. And um, there doesn't, there's a lot of downsides to that. Um, and on the other hand, it's like, what, if we are gonna to move towards a kind of nationalization of some of these social media domains, uh, which whether we like it or not seem to be, a, they're gonna provide a, a large part of our ability to self-govern in the future, as long as this pandemic lasts, certainly, but I don't think we're really gonna go back from the degree to which uh, the internet now mediates the economy um, and, and our labor and everything that we do. Um, and so, yeah, it's a question I don't have I don't have the answer myself um, other than the obvious scary parts of it, but like, what can we learn from China about how not to do this? Um, how do we decentralize it in, in some of the ways that have been mentioned already uh, while still, um, you know, getting us away from market dynamics. The last thing I'll say, market uh, dynamics in the sense of profit seeking dynamics. There are other ways of thinking about what markets are that aren't just based on profit. And that's the thing about these technologies and these algorithms is that they've been hijacked by the profit motive by these giant corporations who are siphoning our attention away from, from, our, from, from us and from the other things we should be paying attention to. And if we took away the profit motive, then what are the other motives that would drive the production of algorithms? 
Um, that's an interesting question, and it leads me into some possible utopian uh, ideas rather than just the dystopia that it's easy to get mired in. Um, but we're, it's dangerous no matter which direction we go. The risks are um, uh, multiple. That's all I got. I'll just add a, a quick little note too, in, in the sense that, you know, I think some of these other market dynamics don't necessarily need to come from government. Um, and so, you know, it, there's many ways that they emerge and get integrated. Um, and, and speaking of social media too, I think there's a place for uh, uh, certain platforms that are more private and, uh, you know, so, so that you can still engage outside of that, that whole ecosystem and um, knowing that, uh, each one of those places is, is kind of different, um, uh, has a different context, uh, would require a different type of, of interaction as well. So it's like, again, getting back to plurality. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, but to your point, Matt, it's it, for, for me, like, I guess maybe I'll just in summation, I was intimidated by having this conversation uh, uh, when we were talking about, you know, kind of national level politics. Cause uh, to be honest, like when I vote, like, you know, like I said, I'm a bit of a political nomad. Like one moment I'm voting for a libertarian, then I'm, you know, it's a, a democratic thing and then it's a Republican. You know, each one of them seems to have its own context. And sadly, the bigger uh, uh, the, the legislation, especially at the national level, the more I'm just like, I have, I have zero intuition of what the impact of this is gonna be. Um, and in my life personally, it's like the places of direct relationships and local community uh, are, you know, pretty much where all of my, you know, not all of my attention, the majority of my attention is spent. Uh, it's what feels natural. It feels, uh, and, and I think that that um, re-communalization uh, uh, is, is kind of essential and uh, is, is gonna be, that foundation seems essential to me for, for us to even get the, the, the national level uh, listening or, or operating in any kind of coherent way because we have the sense has to be uh, done at the, the kind of tribal level. I think that the retribalization uh, that is enabled by the digital era is, is the theme that uh, that kind of takes this political generation uh, or, or you know, um, colors the political generation for me. I'll leave it there. Anyone else free to feel free to jump in with any closing remarks or reflections or salient takeaways to chew on for next time? Yeah, so I guess my sort of uh, synthesis of what I've kind of taken from this conversation is that we seem to be in some level of broad agreement that the current control systems are inadequate, both in terms of what they're optimizing for and their ability to successfully optimize. Um, I'm imagining like a car, which is solely being optimized for speed. Well, you're trading off against a lot of other important values like safety, like actually going in the direction you want to go, etc. So I'm noticing here that our economy is essentially optimizing for a single metric, which is you know, quarterly profit or GDP growth. Um, our government is constituted to optimize similarly for a single metric, which I would roughly gesture at by talking about an 18th century idea of what freedom means. Um, and so we need a more complex optimization system that can trade off and balance the values of, you know, lack of environmental degradation and or regeneration. Um, we want to look at material conditions of humans. We want to look at mental health. And we do still want to look at freedom and economic growth as important optimization targets. And 
so what I'm taking from this is that that as far as moving into more adequate systems, we need to look at ways to re reach some sort of equilibrium between those non-fungible demands. And uh, and I'm very interested to continue thinking about this sort of uh, implication for a long time. So thanks, everyone. I've had a great time, and I, I just want to add that there's been very little discussion relative to the capital incident and what it might represent in terms of, you know, the collective spirit and the emotional needs of people, you know, and what these people were trying to do and how they might feel disengaged, how they're unrespected, right? There's a huge, both the QAnon thing and the Black Lives Matter thing, even though they're not equal, are a whole bunch of people feeling very strongly that they're not being respected and included in the system properly. And there's a massive emotional dimension to all of this that needs to be addressed in order to implement any of the kind of changes that we might propose. So, um, you know, for a future discussion, I think that's very critical. Yeah, I would say uh, I really resonate with, uh, do I call you Cayman or Pascal? Which one, which one should I refer to you as? I'll just say Pascal, go ahead, yeah. Uh, it's it's layman, but I put Cayman because I was uh, alligators earlier today. But Pascal's fine. Uh -huh. That's what that calls me. <laughs> I like Pascal better. It's like historical reference. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I really resonated with that. I feel like like I've covered so much ground, and this has really left me with a lot to think about. Like I really liked our discussion at the beginning about like different states being like potential like laboratories for different systems. And our like discussion at the end about like social different ways to like quant like quantify different aspects of social media is interesting. So it was all really interesting, but I feel like like it's like just like so much more we could go into. Like I do feel like I would yeah like really interested in like talking about like the symbolism of what happened too. Like the symbol of like all those people like you know sitting on the chairs and in the offices and there's something about that and just like the pe what people think about like the Trump era. Like it's, it's like, I, I don't know what to think, think about the Trump era. It's just such like a rabbit hole. And I feel like we like, there was almost like an entry point earlier or like when we were talking about social issues and how those could potentially be like placed at a state level as like a proposal for how to improve politics a bit. And I thought that was like a really interesting idea. And like, I was having all these like objections to it. So that's something I'd really be interested in talking about more. I feel like social issues are a really important entry point to a lot of important topics around this stuff. Uh, and yeah, thank you guys. You guys are all like so brilliant. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate this. Okay, I think that's it. Uh, anyone else? Uh, if not, uh, I think we're all set. Uh, that was amazing. Thanks so much for taking part in this incredible panel. Layman or, or Cayman, however you want to be called. Jared, Evan, Ariel, Jeremy, and Matt and Ryan for facilitating. Really, really productive discussion. And yeah, we just barely touched on this. This is why maybe in the back of my head, I was going to call it the future of governance post-capital riot because 
this may turn out to be a series. We could turn out, you know, we could turn this into uh, many different panels with all kinds of guests, maybe return uh, panelists in, in the future. So I'm very excited for uh, what comes out of this. And um, so this recording is going to be put up on a Noetic Nomads channel. Uh, you go check it out. And we're going to have the links and resources from our panelists today, as well as those mentioned in the discussion put in the description. So again, that's it. Thank you so much for coming today. I really enjoyed this, and I'm, I'm I hope that people got some value out of this. And that's it for this panel on the future of governance post Capital Riot. Everyone. Yep. Peace out and step up because the world needs you. Okay. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thanks, everyone. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. All right. And we are alone. Do you want I'll to talk? Just... <laughs> I'll just stay a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was like, I was, I was telling, I was uh, talking to um, uh, uh, Evan. People were like private chatting me. I was, I was, yeah, texting Evan. I was like, dude, I'm, I'm like, I'm really trying to fucking keep up with this conversation. I'm like, <laughs> like completely over my head. I'm like, what I are you guys talking about? I was like, what? I'm like, I don't know, like, what is all this like technical like system? Like, I, I'm so not like a techie kind of guy. So yeah, yeah. It was like, I don't even know, like. I didn't even know the parameters to like try to facilitate, you no, know. So that was I that mean, was funny. Like it, it was funny because it was like when I when I asked that question about uh from I forgot their name on um, the technical and the DAO stuff and then on the Bonita Roy AI, I was like, I didn't really expect much. And then they started getting into it. I was like, oh shit. Yeah, me too. I was like, I didn't expect anyone to even have an answer to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, I just realized this is still live. Oh. <laughs> I love you. Anyway, That's great. So did we, did Transparency. Yeah, I mean, wait. Did we? No, we didn't even well, talk shit about anyone. We this love is, This is actually this awesome. actually good because if yeah. people are still watching, because I was gonna say that um, yeah. I, I think it might be fun to have the same people back since there's kind of like a rapport established. Yeah. And and maybe next time we can really get into more like cultural issues or symbolic issues or like more like subjective, you know, emotional, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like maybe the meaning and, and symbolism behind. So Trumpism much. and all of the culture wars and that kind of thing would be fun to chew into. Yeah, there, there is so much, and like they went into it because it was, they were just, you know, everyone was just flowing. We're like, we got to an hour thirty, and I was like, okay, I'm thinking we're about to wrap it up, and like, oh my god, boom, 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 boom. I was like, oh my god, I mean, we could, we could have kept going. So, but I mean, it's good that we left it off here because at least people hungry. It's like, okay, what are we gonna do next? You know, right now, right. future of governance post capital riot. What's the next one? Future governance. This, 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 this. There's so many things. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be another. Uh, there'll be another meta crisis soon to feed <laughs> us more. Uh... How could there be another meta crisis? Wait, <laughs> we'll in just the wait me for the next one. Wait, then. a meta crisis? <laughs> a meta crisis? Wait a minute. We just coined something. The meta, meta, the meta. Wait, the meta meta crisis. Wait, did someone coin that already? I think someone Probably. in the Stoa coined that. Someone, <laughs> of course, with the Stoa, they did something meta 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 meta. But I mean, like, yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah. That was pretty Whew. awesome. I need to take a nap. Yeah, after that. <laughs> that was cool. Well, thank so you, thank good. you, Albert. That was yeah. that was fantastic. I think I think also next time I want to have you know that was good as an initial just like get everything out there. Let's see like what people are interested in talking about, what people mm. you know what people's backgrounds are, and then we can have a more focused question for mm. next time and um, yeah yeah have a little yeah. bit more narrow, and I think that'd be helpful. Mm. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much. I mean, you're the one that like really started this. You spurred it. You were like you were just like oh let's I got a uh, you know. Uh, Layman and uh, um, Jared, I was like, okay, and let's start just boom, and it just start just people just start flooding in. I mean, today we just had Jeremy and uh, and Matt out of nowhere, so yeah, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is how this, yeah. this is how this stuff works, man. We be like, oh, we think we're gonna do that. No, it, you know, it just and it just comes out of nowhere. So 
Exactly. All exactly. Right. All right. Cool, so that's good. Thank you that so was much. Amazing. Thank you for doing this. And uh, yeah, let's let's we'll go. We'll, I'll start organizing the next one. Yeah, let's do it. Co-creation. Right. This is why I started Nomad Nomad's Discord. Is anyone listening to this right now still? I'm going to upload this. Go to the Noetic Nomad's Discord. Be part of this crazy stuff happening. This is where it all started. And there's going to be a lot more to come. Okay? All right. So see you there. Noetic Nomad's Discord. I'm going to put the link. All right. Take all right, care, Ryan. Out, Take care, Jacob. Have a good one, everyone. Peace out.